Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We started, as I mentioned, uh, we started in 1 Corinthians a couple weeks ago, and then last week we went a different direction. I re-preached, last Sunday I re-preached the message I had preached on Wednesday on healing. I encourage you, if there's, a, if there's still a handful of you that have not heard that, that weren't here for either one of those services, uh, download that message, listen to it online, get a copy of it. It's important, all right? Sent you a uh, copy of the confession that I led you in via email. If you didn't get that, if you'd like that, uh, let us know. We'll make sure we get a copy of that in your hand. I think it's important that you have it. Uh, but two weeks ago, we, can, we are continuing through the Bible, and we got to 1 Corinthians. Um, can't give you a huge review. We're a little short on time. I would encourage you to go back and uh, get that message if you missed it. But if you do remember, Paul opened up by reminding them of all the time he spent with them. Uh, mentioned that uh, during our communion med- meditation. I lived with him for a year and a half, ministered there at his own expense, and uh, poured his life into them, taught them, raised up leaders among them, and then he launches into chastising them for their uh, carnality and their immaturity. Just saying they, they're taking too long to grow up. They're acting like babies. They're acting like mere men. They are still, their passions are still geared a little bit too much toward the world and not enough toward Christ and his word. He pleads with them to walk in unity, to walk in love for one another, to stop comparing themselves with each other. One's going around saying, oh, I was baptized by Apollos. Oh, yeah, Peter baptized me. And a few of them could say that Paul baptized them and uh, tells them to stop that, that they're all, as far as their baptism, their conversion, the manner of that, they were all products of Jesus Christ himself, and that's what's important. He encourages them, again, by reminding them of the fact that they have the Spirit of God, and with him, they have all they possibly could need to reign in this life. So grow up, stop strutting around like you accomplished this on your own, acknowledge that it's a gift from God, and serve one another in humility. He tells them, as he's wrapping up that section, that he's getting ready to come and visit them. And it can go one of two ways. He says, I can come as a loving father and just talk, and we can spend time enjoying each other's presence, and I can uh, tell, how, tell you how glad I am that you're growing in the faith, or I can come with a rod in my hand as a father who's coming home to discipline his children. How do you want it to be? He's sending them this letter ahead of time so that they can clean house, get these things taken care of. And then he gets into a specific case. We talked about it last week, of this case of this, uh, this man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. His prescription in this case was uh, to, he encourages the, the rest of the church to cut ties with this guy. Uh, stop, you know, cut him off from fellowship. This was Paul's version of church discipline. Church discipline isn't something we concentrate on very much in this day and age because we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to chase anybody off. But Paul's saying this is going to be good for this man. If you rob him of your Christian fellowship, make it clear that you don't approve of his lifestyle. Uh, the good, the 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 good possible ending is he'll get his head on straight and come back, which, as I mentioned, again, spoiler, he does. Uh, or, at worst, he'll go out there and the world will beat up on him. He's, he, he refers to it as turning this ma- young man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Uh, that the likelihood is he'll die physically before he walks completely away from the faith. He says he'll be saved. Won't be pretty, but at least he'll be saved. Now, 
it is interesting, I want to I make this, this comment, people have extrapolated from that. You know, Paul's writing them about their carnality. And he goes on to write, as we're going to look at today, and I should, I should tell you this up front, I don't know, maybe I should have sent out an email about this. We're going to be dealing with some mature themes today because we're going to be talking about sex and marriage. Is that Scott? It should be marriage and sex. I'm talking about it in the order that Paul writes about it, Okay. Uh, there's nothing going to be anything graphic. I'm not going to go beyond the word of God. Uh, so I, I don't think, I think that everybody in here is old enough to hear what I'm talking about. All right. But I just want to tell you this, it, it might be a moment or two that make you squirm. Anyway, uh, since he talks about this specific case where he's talking about a sexual sin, this, this one guy, and then since he goes on to write about sexual sin right after that, some people have, have, uh, made the assumption that the church in Corinth was just overrun with sexual immorality. Hayford very, very carefully points out in his notes uh, on this part of the text that that's, that's not a fair assumption. We, we can't say that just because there is this one case and because, yeah, and it is true, in Corinth there were, it, it was a city that was very sexually immoral. It was part of their culture. It was part of the pagan worship, temple prostitutes by the thousands. Um, and again, a very immoral environment. But that does not mean that sexual immorality was pervasive in the church. His specific complaint is not that this type of sin was widespread. It's just that they weren't taking this one case seriously. Right? Uh, they weren't treating this as if it were an unacceptable practice for a Christian. And this is what Paul tells him. He's not saying, hey, you guys all got to stop sleeping with your stepmoms. He's saying, look, there's this one guy in your church, and you shouldn't be putting up with this. It's not good for him, and it's not good for the body. This is like um, leaven. And if you continue to tolerate that in your midst, it's going to spread, and it's going to corrupt uh, the church as a whole, make you weaker as a body. So, uh, again, you can go back uh, to the last uh, two weeks ago and listen to some, for some more details on that. And then in chapter 6, he kind of shifts gears, try to get through this part quickly. But in chapter 6, he starts talking about lawsuits. Let me read the first seven verses of chapter 6. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgment, judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so then that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to brother sorry but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another why do you not rather accept wrong why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated wow do you remember what we said back in romans after the first 11 chapters, again, the doctrinal stuff, Paul started talking about the outworking of our faith. And in Romans chapter 13 particularly, he talks about the relationship of the Christian to government. And we talked about how God had established the family, the church, and human government. These were all or, uh, ordinances of God. God approves of human government. But the bottom line about this stuff is that God has ordained or instituted human government to modify the sinful behavior of the unregenerate 
You and I should not need a human law. We don't need Congress. We don't need a legislature. We don't need the Constitution to tell us not to murder or not to steal. Everybody's belongings, everybody's family, everybody's personal life should be safe from the believer. Law or no law. Am I right? Because we have the Spirit of God. We have God's law. But God instituted human government because he loves everybody. And human governments, by, and again, because human governments are made up of people, and if they are uh, unbelievers, this is obviously going to be more so, but there's corruption in human government. There's no such thing as a perfect government. But they do. The fact that governments exist instead of anarchy keeps a lot more people alive, keeps a lot more people in control of their own property. It's a good influence on society. But you and I shouldn't need it. And this is Paul bringing this down to a smaller level. You've got, you've got a... Uh, a situation where you believe your rights are being trampled, uh, trampled on, or you're being abused by somebody, uh, somebody is violating your rights, and they might be breaking the law. But Paul's saying as believers in a local congregation, you ought, you've got wisdom, you've got wisdom available to you that isn't available to the unregenerate, to the unsaved, to the unbeliever. Are you saying, Paul says, that there's not one person in your congregation wise enough to settle this among yourselves? Do you know how embarrassing it is to have you go before the world for judgments like this? He literally says it's better off just to let yourself be cheated than to do that. And how many of us are willing to do that? Paul is just uh, incredulous. You who agree on the law of God, you want to drag one another before a court of law that does not agree about the it can't possibly see it from a christian angle and he's saying number one how do you really expect to get a right judgment from such people and two again what a terrible witness but it's worth pointing out there's nothing in this passage about suing the unbeliever you can't hold an unbeliever uh accountable to the christian worldview and laws are laws. And you can take legal recourse against an unbeliever. Uh, let, I want you to keep that in mind before we read the next passage, which is a little more uh, familiar, I think, to most of you. But this context is important, and I'll come back and, and, and address that. Beginning in uh, verse 8, it says, No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when we read those verses that I just read, we usually go to that as a proof text when we are arguing about sexual sin, particularly homosexuality. That's one of the hot-button issues, cultural issues, that we as Christians have to deal with and answer. And this is one of the proof texts we go to, see what Paul says. And we take that, those two verses, and we take particularly what it says about the homosexual and the sodomite, uh, the adulterer and the fornicator, and say, see, these people aren't going to go to heaven. That's not what that verse says, and that's not Paul's point. Is Paul Now, Paul is not saying these things are okay. He's absolutely not. He is saying that these people are, these very people 
who are guilty of these things. He's talking about the world. His point is not, hey, you in Corinth who are in the Christian congregation, stop fornicating, stop committing adultery, stop your homosexual activity, stop extorting one another, etc. He's saying this is the kind of behavior that characterizes the world that you are turning to for justice. Do you see anything wrong with that? He's not addressing this sin in the congregation. He's saying, you're going to take your brother, who you supposedly share a Christian worldview with, and you're going to go to people like thieves, extortioners, sodomites, homosexuals, adulterers, people who, don't see, who are not only doing these things, they don't see anything wrong with this. And you're going to trust them to do justice in your life. Their worldview's a mess to start out with. Let me give you another example. This is something uh, I usually mention when there's an election coming up. The pro-life issue, uh, which, which is another hot-button political issue, political issue for believers. Uh, people have accused me in the past, uh, in, just in having a conversation about this, we might not have, be having a very wide-ranging uh, conversation, but if I say, hey, look, I cannot vote for a candidate who's not pro-life, they say, well, you're a single-issue voter. Well, I guess it's kind of true. It's not true, because right, I look at a number of issues before I cast my vote. But the fact is, if they're wrong on that issue, I don't really need to look much further. And that's the logic. If you can't be right on an issue as basic as the right to life, man, I got no reason to trust your judgment about anything else. And, th- and this is something, there is more and more evidence, something else just came out the other day. It was some medical thing. This wasn't a Christian website. I'll, I'll look it up and I'll, and I'll try to post it or post a link to it. I should have I been thinking ahead. But it was like, they've come out with one more uh, building block in the argument. It is clear that life is life in the womb. This is a, med- the, the pro-abortion argument dropped that line decades ago when they started this well, i'm not saying nobody does it anymore uh but but the cornerstone of the of the pro-choice movement is not uh well it's just a mass of cells it's not a life they just ignore that argument because they lost that in the medical arena years ago they just try to let's don't even look at that side of it because clearly that is a life in there so they put everything in the realm of uh women's rights uh, self-direction, uh, keep the government out of our bedroom, keep the government out of my uterus, this sort of thing. And it all, all these sound bites and everything else, but it ignores the basic fact that life is life. And even the Constitution tells us this is one of the basic God-given rights, life. And so if a politician, somebody who's seeking my vote, tells me, well, I think abortion is a tragic uh, but necessary uh, pr- procedure from time to time. I wish, I, w- I wish it were, I want it to be rare, but I want it to be safe and legal. Why do you want it to be legal? It's the taking of a life. I agree, and listen, God gets it too. You better believe God gets the pain of these women who find themselves in a position where they are forced to come to the conclusion where they think, erroneously, that abortion is the best option. God hurts for these people in this position. He really does. But there's so much deception there. And if a person can't speak straight about the life issue, I really don't care much about what they have to say about the economy or foreign affairs or anything else because there's something tells me that there's something just skewed 
about the way they view the world. This is what Paul is saying in these verses. Now, does that, does that mean that what he's saying about these people is not authoritative? No, it absolutely is. Absolutely is. I think we need to spend some time looking, about, uh, looking at the difference between what it means to be saved and what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. But at the very least, what he's talking about here is that, number one, the people, that there is a difference between people who uh, fall into sin, moral failure, episodic sin, I guess I would call it. We, we should not... Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I'm going to skip that part. It's, there's no doubt about it. What I, my comments, uh, my, my remarks about, about uh, Hayford's comments, notwithstanding, even though Paul is not writing that this behavior is necessarily widespread in the church at Corinth, we know that there were certainly episodes of it, and there probably are episodes of it here at Living Word and in practically every church in the country. These things happen. There are moral failures. There are episodes of sin. But there is a difference between episodes of sin, falling, and embracing a lifestyle to the point where these sins become characteristic. Do you understand that a moral, a momentary moral failure does not, should not become your identity? And it's a shame when somebody allows that to become their identity oh that guy he's the guy who and 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 they bring up a sin they bring up a failure they bring up again an episode from your life and uh man god's word is leave it in the past bury it and let me say this especially this should be especially easy for those of you who came out of a certain sinful lifestyle whatever it was and then got saved Man, the easiest thing in the world should be able to just say, that was B.C. That was before Christ. That man, that woman is dead. That person was dead and buried, and the life I have is new. But let's, let's face it, some of us have faced some of these things and, and, and fallen and failed in ways since we became a Christian. Those are harder to wrestle with. But the forgiveness is just as available. And we can be completely free, and we can continue to not identify with that. Paul is talking about a city that was full of people who were characterized by these sins. These weren't people that had momentary lapses of judgment and committed certain acts. They were, by nature, by character, they were adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, sodomites, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. All right? And Paul's saying these are not the people you want to go to for judgment in the church. Now, let me read on here and tie something else together. Um, first of all, look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our Lord. That's a big statement right there. When he's talking about the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, it's important to understand, again, he's not looking at his congr this congregation saying, hey, those of you who are all these things, stop it. He's saying, don't go to the courts of law that are filled with people who are characterized by these sins who aren't even believers. Remember, some of you used to be some of them. 
used to be. He's not, and, and the thing you need to understand is, when God comes onto the scene and he's dealing with revilers, drunkards, covetous, on all these different sexual sins, he's not saying, look, I know this stuff is important to you. I know you really enjoy this particular lifestyle, but I need you to prove something to me. Since I'm God, since I'm saving you, I need you to prove something to me. I need you to lay that down to be a good Christian. That's not what God's saying. God's saying, I love you. And I know you better than you could possibly know yourself. I, unlike you, can see the end from the beginning. And this stuff that has characterized your life up till now, if you stay in that, it's going to kill you. So I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to pull you out of that and put you on the path of life. A path that leads to life. That's God's perspective. He's, he's not depriving us of the things that we think we want. He's rescuing us from those things. Such were some of you. Now let's read on here. In verse 12, he writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now this is a, we saw a version of this back in Romans when Paul was writing about doubtful things, remember? I mean, Paul is, uh, you know, things like diet and holy days, Paul is clearly not saying that murder is lawful for him. It's just not profitable, okay? So, in fact, he's actually making the opposite point. Reading on from verse 13, and we'll read down to verse 20. It says, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual, immoral, who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, the first thing I want you to see back there at the beginning of that passage when he's talking about, look, food is for the stomach, stomach is for food. He's, he just said everything's lawful for me, but not everything is profitable, not everything's helpful. This really does harken back to what he says in Romans, what we're going to also read in Galatians, where he says some people have a real hang-up about certain foods, but at the end of the day, food is food, and food is for the stomach. Food is meant to go into the stomach. The stomach is there to digest food. The stomach's for the food. The food's for st stomach. And so he's making a contrast. He says, your body, however, is not made for sexual immorality. That's not what it's for. Your body has a sexual function, and he's going to get into the proper sexual function here in a minute. He's saying, but it isn't sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? The things he just listed over here. We're going to look at them here in just a second. People look at verse 19, where it says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and they use it an awful lot to talk about uh, smoking and drinking. 
And I'm not saying that that's a completely inappropriate application of this verse. You know, people, oh, take care of your body's temple of the Lord, so don't put anything, uh, don't put any smoke in it, don't put any alcohol in it, take care of it, exercise, eat right. Uh, We should be good stewards of this temple. But the clear primary focus of this passage is to abstain from sexual immorality. We look back at at verse 9, and the Lord condemns fornication. What is fornication? What's the difference between these? Very briefly, fornication is simply sex between unmarried people. If you are not married and you are having sex, you are a fornicator or you are fornicating. I won't put that identifier on you. Adultery is sex when one of the participants is married to somebody else. Homosexuality, obviously, is sex between people of the same gender. And the Bible condemns all of these. The only biblically sanctioned sexual activity is between one man and one woman who are married to each other. It's that simple. Once again, that is not an excuse for these idiots who march around saying God hates you know what. God loves homosexuals. God loves fornicators. God loves adulterers. He loves thieves. He loves extortioners. He's simply saying these should not be the characteristics of a believer. He's also saying that these behaviors, because I love them, I want to remove those behaviors from them because those behaviors will lead to death. In chapter 7, he actually develops this even further. He says... In verses, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read all of chapter 7. I'm going to skip over some of it, but I do want to get to, I really got to get through this, so if you'll bear with me, it makes no sense to stop yet. I haven't even gotten to the spiritual part yet. But in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote me, so obviously they, they wrote him a letter asking him questions about these things, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then goes on to talk about how they should not deprive each other of sexual satisfaction in the marriage, uh, except as agreed upon for a short time for prayer and fasting. Uh, what I want you to see from those verses, and this is one of those squirmy moments, uh, one of the more common questions I've been asked over the years, usually anonymously, and usually during my youth pastor days, is what does the Bible say about masturbation? The Bible doesn't use that word. This is the closest the Bible comes to addressing that, though. What is Paul saying? He's saying when it comes to the conjugal relationship between man and woman, the man's body is for the pleasure of his wife. The wife's body is for the pleasure of her husband. If you, as a man or as a woman, are using your body simply to your own sexual pleasure, you are misusing the sexual function as God designed it. Do you understand? That's the answer, really, to, is masturbation a sin? In light of this, yes, it is. Because, again, well, I don't need to just continue to hammer away at that. It's pretty clear. But again... Is it going to send you to hell? Not any more than any other sin, okay? It's just, we can't keep looking at things like, well, you know, uh, you know, like the people of, well, is it a mortal sin? Is it a venal sin? Is it different kinds of sin? Is, is it, does, 
does it please God? Does it glorify God? Does it profit you? Does it profit your relationship? Okay? Stop looking about, well, how can I really get away with this? Can God just wink at this? No, he doesn't wink at any sin. He wants to clean us up and what? Rescue us from the damage sin does to us. Your marriage will be healthier. Your life will be healthier if you keep all of these functions in the arena that God designed them for. All right? Going on, quickly, quickly, right? Uh, Paul's position, let me race through the rest of this chapter because there's some confusing stuff. I don't want to rob you of the understanding, but hopefully, since you know from week to week where we're going, uh, going to be, more or less, that hopefully you've read this recently. If you haven't, go home and read it. And if you feel like I haven't answered your questions or haven't touched something in enough detail, let me know. I'll get back to it. But Paul's position on marriage, which he goes on to talk about, I would characterize as a sort of a muted celebration. Paul approves of marriage, of course, but he himself is so fully given to the things of God and to his ministry call that it's really not high on his list of priorities. Verses uh, 5 through 9 basically say, look, if you're married, uh, don't withhold your body from your spouse. Uh, And if you're not married, don't get in a hurry to get married. Verses 10 to 16 address divorce. And to really properly understand what he's saying here, because he he comes down very, very uh, clearly. He says, do not, women, do not leave your husband. And it's clearly understood uh, by every commentator and every minister worth his salt, that the same thing applies to husbands. Wives, don't leave your husbands. Husbands, don't leave your wives. And if you do, you can't remarry unless you remarry the spouse you left. Well, that, wow, we, there's a lot of people right in here who are in a lot of trouble uh, if that's in force, right? Now listen, you need to understand the context of the times. When Paul was writing this, divorce was rampant. It was Um, It was terribly, terribly common among Jews and Gentiles. People got divorced at the drop of a hat, very much like it is here today, maybe even more so. They just didn't need much of an excuse to get divorced. And Paul's saying, you just don't just leave a marriage. You don't. Now, Jesus himself said divorce was permissible in the case of infidelity, so Paul's not going to contradict Jesus. And I believe it's possible... I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I believe there, there are times when a husband has abandoned his wife and family without initiating divorce proceedings. And this is just my opinion. You can argue with me. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be open to uh, correction and discussion. I believe in those cases, uh, divorce, it, it, it is perfectly okay for then the, the other spouse, whoever, whoever has been abandoned, abandoned can, can initiate legal divorce proceedings. The marriage is over anyway. And so I don't think they're under the same condemnation here or, or the same rules that, that, as Paul is talking about. What Paul, I think if you look at it again in the context of Scripture, where it's at here, and in the context of the times, he's simply chastising them for their uh, easy attitude, their whole uh, this lackadaisical approach. They're just not taking marriage seriously. And Paul is reminding them this is a vow before God. When I have counseled divorce people who are, I, when, I'll put it this way, when I have walked through divorces with people, I've had people come into my office who weren't even part of the church, who wanted advice. Uh, this happened a couple of times in Farmer City. Uh, it's happened here. I've talked to people. Sometimes I'm formally counseling them. Sometimes I'm just a shoulder for them to cry on. I will say this, that in the overwhelming majority of cases, in fact, right off the bat, I can't think of one where this wasn't the case, 
and I'm talking about a, a, a narrow range of, of these uh, conversations, when somebody comes in talking about how they just can't be married anymore, it's usually very one-sided. One wants to leave, the other one doesn't. And the one wanting to leave always has another iron in the fire. I have counseled couples where that has, you know, I'm looking back, I'm thinking of, of two or three specific cases where this is something that, you know, somebody has clearly been wronged. What Paul is talking about is this, uh, with the boilerplate divorce proceedings, irreconcilable differences. That means nothing morally anymore. Legally it does. Irreconcilable differences or what's the other one? Pain and suffering or emotional or whatever it is. It, 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 there are two kind of boilerplate uh, divorce things because they can mean anything. It's kind of like going back to the abortion thing. Well, abortion should be uh, legal uh, if it means saving the life of the mother. Well, now they've expanded that to mean, well, if it's going to make her life easier, if it's going to interfere with her education, blah, 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 blah. All these call, come under the banner of saving the life of the mother. Paul's saying this, this is a no-no when it comes to divorce. You cannot conflate your happiness with the holiness of marriage. You saying, and I heard somebody say this, the most important thing God wants for me is to be a good mother to my children, and I can't be a good mother if I'm not happy, and this marriage makes me unhappy. Therefore, I know God wants me to leave my husband. Now, again, does God's heart break for that kind of pain? I believe it does. It's simply sin and selfishness for us to follow that path. What Paul is going to say here, and this will become clearer next week, because it, he comes down where it really looks like he's saying, don't get married. Almost sounds like he's saying, God doesn't want you to get married. It's not really what he's saying. Everything boils down to the age they were living in, the pressure they were under as Christians, the suffering, the persecution. He said there's, there's the problem with marriage as Paul saw it. And this is one of those great passages where he says, here's my word. Now this is me, not God. And then he tells him what he, he Paul says. And then he'll turn around and say, now this is God, not me. And at the end of the day, he says, you know, marriage is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with marriage. Here's the problem. When you get married, your interests are divided. You should not seek a spouse just for the sake of getting married. If you're going to be married, it needs to be somebody who's not going to distract you from your pursuit of God. Here's the problem, and I'll say this again next week. We have lowered the bar when it comes to what is a good marriage, a good Christian marriage. We've lowered it for ourselves, and we've lowered it for our children. Our goal as believers, when we get married, is am I marrying somebody who is going to assist me, who is going to complete me, who is going to compliment me as I pursue God and his call on my life? When my children are ready to get married, am I looking for something? Because here, here's the attitude I see way, way too often. Is, well, they married somebody who makes a good living, they're a good person, they treat them right, and, uh, and yeah, they've got a church background. I know they got saved at one point, so at least they're a Christian. The main thing is, they're making a good living, they're well thought of, they're a good person, and they treat each other right. Where's Christ at the center of that? What, what should our goal be here for our kids? And again, for ourselves. 
Last illustration I'll leave you with. You can even stand as I make it is this. You, you're familiar with the phrase, he who finds a wife, or the, the proverb, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, right? Ran into somebody. Who was it? Lindsay. I saw her at the, at the uh, festival the other night. How's it going? It's going great. I found $7. She wasn't looking for $7. She was walking somewhere, and she looked down, and there was $7 right where she was. In fact, she saw a dollar, she picked it up, and there was another dollar and a five underneath it. That's the picture that that verse is drawing. It's not somebody out there looking for a wife. Ah, finally, found somebody I can marry. It's somebody who's on a journey, going somewhere, and they know where they're going. I am pursuing God. This is the direction I'm going. And along the way, they find somebody who's on the same path. Well, look what I found. I found a good thing. I didn't have to get off my path to marry her, to make myself happy. We're going the same direction. Paul's heart is we've only got a limited amount of time to get this gospel out there the whole world needs to hear it we cannot afford to be distracted by anything even something as good and holy as marriage so marry carefully but you make all your choices carefully going back to what he would said earlier all these other sins does god love these people absolutely We can't afford to get bogged down in these things because it makes us less effective as individual believers and as a church. So when we confront these things in one another, we hold each other accountable. We clean up our own house and our own lives. Why? So we can escape the fires of hell? No, because we are going somewhere and we want to get there fast. We want to affect as many people in as short a time as possible. We want to win them, right? And we can only do that in a spirit of unity. And the true unity is only going to exist if we clean these things from ourselves, our households, and our church. God loves us that much. Amen? (sighs) Sorry I kind of had to rush the end of this. We'll get back to it. We'll look at some details we didn't get a chance to look at this week. Meanwhile, going back to the beginning of this service, what was the theme? God loves you. God saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you completely. He does. He hates your sin because he loves you. He hates your sin, not just because it offends him, but because he loves you and sin will kill you. That's the wages of sin. That's what the Word of God tells us. The good news is he doesn't say, man, if you want to get saved, you're going to have to stop that. way to salvation is to lay down, lay down all that uh, horrible behavior. No, look to the cross. Jesus took the punishment. Jesus took the judgment for every imaginable sin you have committed. All of humanity. He took the sin of the world. This is biblical language. On himself. And Jesus was crucified and died the death penalty for all of that sin. When we, by faith, look to the cross and say, that was for me, and I needed it to be for me because I can't save myself. Thank you, Jesus, for bleeding for me, for dying for me, dying my death. And then we look to him and says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But to confess him as Lord means you're putting him in charge. You cannot come to God and say, God, I want your salvation, and I want the meaning you bring to my life, but I'm going to make the decisions about my life. That ain't lordship. If you can't trust him to run your life, you can't trust him. He's a good God. He's a good father. He loves you. And he has a good plan for your life. Don't you want that? 
plus heaven. If you've never made that decision, if you've never committed your life to Christ, I invite you to do it right now. I'm going to pray a short prayer. We're going to sing a short song. As soon as they start singing, come up here and let me pray with you. It's a short prayer. Don't be embarrassed. Don't worry about what anybody else is thinking. The vast majority of people in this room have already done this. Anybody in here regret it? I see that hand. Ushers? No, I'm kidding. There was no hand. But this is your moment. This is the moment to embark upon the life God has for you. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.